0: You are listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, if you would turn with me, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 to start off. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have, fa- have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we call on your name tonight, Lord. Even the weight of the title of this series, Discovering God, Lord, is beyond us. We say, God, we're, uh, we're finite and we need you. Lord, I pray you impart your Holy Spirit on us tonight, God, that we might catch a glimpse God of who you are and how you love us your divine plan for us God but more importantly Lord to understand the heart of our creator and God I confess I need you I'm I'm not adequate Lord God to carry the weight of this Lord but by the power of your spirit I pray you do it tonight in our church in Jesus name amen So we started a new series a couple weeks ago, Discovering God, and we started off strong. God is love. Everybody loves that. God is love. He loves me. Who doesn't love love? Everyone loves love. Week two, we said that God is jealous. Eh, okay. But he's jealously in love with us. He's like a husband pursuing his bride. Okay, this is good. Tonight, we say God is just. Bummer. (laughs) Hopefully tonight we're going to see that this is a very good thing. Um, Earlier this week, by uh, God's divine timing, a former student of mine, he posted on his Facebook page this statement. It said, judgment is the absence of love. He was not my brightest student. God bless him. He's a senior in college now. He's going through that time of discovering himself. But listen, if we're going to say that God is love and God is just, some of us, we might wrestle with this statement. Judgment is the absence of love. If you've ever confronted someone that you you really loved and cared about when they were going down a road that was uh, leading to disaster, or if you've ever watched Jerry Springer for like five minutes, then you've heard the outcry of the accused person who says, Don't judge me. (laughs) Who are you to judge? Or if they're feeling extra saucy, they might throw scripture at you and say, judge not lest ye be judged. Whoever speaks a New King James language, really. <laughs> is it true that love and judgment are two isolated things? We've established God is love, right? That he is jealously in love with us, Right? So then why, how can God judge us? And some of us might even, we might squirm when we hear God is just. First, because to have justice means there has to be some kind of accountability in our life. And no one is excited about accountability. I coached high school football for 10 years. And the only way we could get guys to keep their grades up to be at practice on time, to have the right uniform on, to not make a mess of their lives was accountability. We, we gave them accountability partners. You son are accountable to that son. If he starts getting in trouble in class, you get him on the right path. If you know that his grades are slipping, come alongside him and help him out. And I'll tell you what, this worked pretty good during the football season. After the last game, no more accountability partners. (laughs) No one is excited about accountability. The second reason we might squirm a bit at the idea that God is just is because we look around at the world and we see a lot of evil and a lot of destruction. How can we put those things together? God is just and yet so much around me is not just. Drive-by shootings, child abuse, natural disasters, where's God's justice, and all of that. Many of us also cringe when we hear the word judgment. Judgment. It might awaken in some of us that idea of legalism. Legalism being the love of the law. And you know these legalistic people. They're the ones when you walk into church, they give you the, are you glorified by that dress you're wearing? Is God glorified by that? Or on their Facebook page, they say, goodbye, Facebook world. I will not be talking to you for six months while I'm praying. Get over yourself. How can we say in one breath that God is love and even that he loves us jealously, but in the next breath say that he is judgment and he judges us? Tonight we're going to try to unpack this concept that God is just by looking at it in two ways. One, we look at God the just. And then we look at God the justifier. First, God the just. For us to even... Consider the justice of God or justice in general. We have to lay a foundation to stand on. And to understand why God allows evil in the world, we have to backtrack to God's love. Remember that God created a perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden. And this garden was filled with shalom, with the peace of God. There was no death. There were no natural disasters. There was no separation between God and his creation, and man could enjoy God to his fullest. Also present in the garden was a gift that God imparted to us, and that gift was choice. He didn't have to give it, but he gave it. God did not create robots in Eden, it would have made his life much easier if he had. Instead, he created us, men and women, in his likeness. We need to understand the weight of this. Who are we, anyway? Dust and ashes, here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, we get a glimpse of God's love when he gives us a choice to accept him or reject him. This is the foundation of all love. You can never truly love someone, nor can you really fully know that they love you, until you have made yourself open to be rejected or received by that person. When I met my wife, Noelle, we were freshmen in college. I saw her at a basketball game. And I was like, dude, who is that? (laughs) She was beautiful and just amazing, funny, and all amazing things. I'm still smitten with her. And I began to pursue her in my silly, teenage, you know, fumbly, bumbly way. And along that journey, there came that point where we had to have the talk. You know what I'm talking about. It is the most terrifying conversation two people can have. The talk where one person, a.k.a. Dave, (laughs) exposes their heart to the other person. Listen, I like you. Thanks. (laughs) No, I mean, I really like you. Thanks. No, I think... Maybe I love you. Silence. (laughs) It took a while, but she came around. And it's funny, it's silly to think about, you know, two young people going back and forth with this, but listen, this is the most amazing thing, that we're not talking about two little teenagers, we're talking about the creator God, sovereign over heaven and earth and everything in them, who... Formed us out of nothing, breathed life into us, provided a place where we could have perfect peace and thrive, and then that God says, Will you have me? Will you receive me? It's unbelievable. And the whole while, God knows, he understands that with our choice, with the option to reject his love, that evil can enter the story of man. This is why God hates evil. N.T. Wright explains that if we want to understand God's justice, we need to first understand the magnitude of God's love for his creation. He says this, only one thing in the universe arouses God's anger, and that is evil. Why? Because the very essence of evil is to resist, reject, and refuse the love of God. God hates evil. The statistics In our world regarding suffering are staggering, overwhelming, malnutrition, to starvation, disease, exploitation, war. We need to understand that God hates these things. But he hates them at an even greater level than we do. God hates them not only because of what it does to us but how it destroys what he first created. God hates evil. But God, through the entire story arc of the Bible, he chooses not to explain to us what evil is or where it came from, although we'd like that. Instead, he chooses to tell us what he does about evil. And here's the gist of it. In Genesis chapter 3, evil arrives on the scene. In verse 1, the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God made. And there it is. We don't know where it came from or why it happened. Only that evil is now present in the garden. And listen, from this point... To revelation, God is at war with evil. He hates evil. Again, N.T. Wright says, evil is the essence of rebellion against God's love. Evil seeks to frustrate all the good purposes that God's love seeks to achieve for his creation. And that makes God angry. What sort of God would he be if you were not angry with anything that tries to wreck his good creation. What Wright is saying and explaining to us here is that God hates evil because it's evil. But he hates it even more because it wrecks his original plan for us. It was never meant to be this way. Another thing we notice in this is that evil and rebellion are closely tied together. Remember, rebellion is the resistance to or the defiance of any authority or control or tradition. Because God has given us a choice to receive or resist him. When we resist what God determines to be good and right, we enter into rebellion. And nothing, from the beginning of history till today, nothing good has ever come from man defying God. In fact, we know that God hates when we do this, and he will punish, even those he loves, he will punish them when they choose to defy him. Not because God is insecure, not because God is a control freak, but because he loves us. Listen, I have three daughters. The youngest is Maggie. She's three years old, and she's great. She's great. But Maggie is in a stage where she thinks it's really funny to punch people. This morning, this afternoon, walking down the hallway of our house, sister, punch. Now, I as a father who loves her, I can say, isn't that cute? Pat, pat, isn't that cute? You see her here at church, and she punches you. You want justice. You don't want me to say, isn't that cute when she does that? Isn't you like that? No. And listen, if I love her and I care about her, I will discipline her in her wickedness. Not because it's good for me. Because I don't want someone else to kick her butt. I want to protect her. We said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about God is love that we have this perception sometimes of God being the great grandpa in the sky who doles out peppermints and just pats us on the head and we can do whatever we want and oh, it's just great to be around you. But that's not accurate. And listen, if you want justice, you don't want a passive grandpa God. If you want justice, you need a warrior God. You need a fighting God. Miroslav Volf is a theologian from Croatia. And he struggled with this concept that God is on one hand a God of everlasting love. And on the other hand, he is a God of justice even to wrath. He said this, I used to think of wrath as unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. All of this changed for Wolf when the country he came from went to war. The estimates of this war say that 200,000 people were killed and 3 million people displaced. Villages and cities where he grew up were destroyed. People there were shelled with bombs day in and day out. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination. And Wolf could not imagine that God would not be angry at this. He says, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency, the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So we see similarly in the way that God's love provokes jealousy, that God's love also provokes justice. He loves us too much. To let evil go unchecked or sin go unpunished. So we know that God hates evil. And he wants it removed because it separates us from his love. So here's the big question. Why doesn't God just remove evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of it? I was watching an interview with... uh, semi-famous pastor person who was releasing a new book, and it was right around, just days, I think, after the tsunami had hit Japan a couple years ago. And the interviewer, he, he couldn't resist. He said, I know we're here to talk about the book, but listen, I need, I need an answer on something. Did God not prevent the tsunami because he doesn't care? Or did he not prevent it because He's not powerful enough to stop it. And the pastor was caught off guard and kind of turned in his seat. Well, you know, and the interviewer pressed it. No, I want to know. Is it that God doesn't care or that he's not powerful enough? Which is it? Why doesn't God destroy evil altogether? Here's the thing that God can destroy evil. Evil, Satan, wickedness, they're not greater than God. They're not even equal to God. This is not Obi-Wan in the force of light and Vader versus in you know the dark side. That would put them on equal footing. That's not what we're talking about. God has all authority to destroy evil, wipe it out completely. But God won't destroy evil, and here's why. Because evil is so completely intertwined with our gift of choice. God would have to remove from us all of our free will to prevent evil from happening in this world. and He's not willing to do that. He didn't create robots. Furthermore, God's not willing to do that because to destroy our gift of choice, to take it away, would remove any chance we would have to accept Him and be restored. He's not willing to do that. So instead of destroying evil, God decides to fight evil to keep it at bay, if you will. All the while, God is opening the door for creation here on earth to be restored back to him as we receive him little by little. We see this fight against evil through the entire Bible when Adam and Eve rebel against God. In his justice and hatred of evil, he expels them from the garden. But in his restoring love, he sends them a promise the serpent seed will be crushed. One day this will be made right. When Cain kills his brother in wicked jealousy, God, in his hatred of evil, in his justice, he expels Cain from the family. But in his loving restoration, God says, but I will go with you, Cain. You won't be alone. I will even put a mark on you and call you my own. When the the world is filled with evil and men's hearts are nothing but wicked all the time. In his hatred of evil and in his justice, God floods the earth, saving only Noah and his family. In love and in restoration, God says, I will give creation a second chance and I'll never do this again. And even Israel, God's chosen people, who he rescues out of Egyptian slavery. When they rebel and begin to serve other gods and worship idols, God in his hatred of evil and his justice, he allows them to go into exile, to be displaced. But he gives them a promise in his love. Israel will be restored as a nation. I'm not done with you. In all of this, we see God's, how God's justice operates when faced with evil. God can't stand evil. He wars against it, and not out of malice or spite, but because he is holy and righteous. He fights to restore shalom on earth. Again, N.T. Wright, he puts it this way, that God's justice is a saving, healing, restorative justice. You hear that? God's justice is a saving, healing, restorative justice because the God of whom justice belongs is the creator God, who has yet to complete his original plan for creation, and whose justice is not designed simply to restore balance in a world out of kilter, but to bring to glorious completion and fruition the creation teeming with life and possibility that he made in the first place? Does God care for the lost and the poor and the marginalized and the sick? The answer is he cares more than we can even understand. He cares because he's their creator God and he's a God of love. And so in God's justice... He must deal with evil and sin in this world because he's also the great judge and he demands that his holy and righteous law be upheld. What's the standard of his law? What's God's standard that he holds us to? Perfection. Not fair. Perfection is the standard. Listen, because that is exactly what he gave us in the very beginning, and we rejected it. God, the creator God, he has every right to judge his creation. And on every level, we come up lacking. We've resisted and rebelled against God, the only verdict possible for humanity is guilty. Are you depressed? Don't be. Listen, there is hope. Great hope. Because see, God knew, he always knew that this would be the case. In his forbearance, he knew that our sinfulness, our pride, our rebellion would have its way in our heart. So from the beginning, he created a plan, a plan to restore Shalom. If God is just, there must be a consequence for evil. But because God is love, he makes a justifier to appease the verdict against us. God becomes the justifier himself. In Genesis 15... God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you for all of humanity. So he says, Abraham, go get a calf and go get a goat. We're going to make a covenant between us. And it says that Abraham was filled with despair. (laughs) He knew immediately he could not hold up his end of the bargain because, remember, His end of the bargain is blamelessness, is perfection. God says, go, get a a calf and bring a goat. And this is how the sacrifice or, or how the covenant would work. They would take the calf and they would cut it open from neck down. And the goat from the neck down. And they would open the animal up, lay it on the ground. And then let's say there were two men going into this covenant. Let's say it was a father whose son was marrying another father's daughter. And the two fathers, they would go into a covenant. So they would split the animal open and lay it on the ground. And then take off their sandals and they would walk through the entrails and the blood of the animal. One and then the next. And here's what they would say. I make a covenant with you to marry our two children together. And the one father says, if my son does not uphold his end of this covenant, may I become like this. These animals we have cut open, may I become like this. And the other father says the same. If my daughter does not fulfill her end of the covenant, then may I become like this. And so when God says to Abraham, we're going to make a covenant, you see why? Abraham is filled with despair. He can't hold up his end of the bargain. And he sees the consequence in front of him. But God knows. From the very beginning, he he knows. So it says in Genesis 15 that that God passed through the animal, the sacrifice, the, the cut open calf and the goat. Not once, but twice. God says, I know, Abraham, I know, humanity, that you will not, you cannot hold up your end of the bargain. So when you fail, may I become like this. And he does. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is wrestling And crying out to God, how long, Lord? How long will evil continue in the world? How long will Israel be in exile? Why won't you save your people? And in Isaiah 53, a servant emerges in the story, a silent servant. And here's what the prophet Isaiah says about this servant. He says, the servant will be bruised for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him will be the chastisement that brought us peace, that brings back shalom. And with his stripes, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the silent servant, the iniquity of all of us. In this servant, we see the fulfillment of God's plan to destroy evil in the world. God would send one who would take the full measure of his justice on himself. As we read in the New Testament, during his time on earth, Jesus, the justifier, he begins to reverse the work of evil in the world, even in his time. On earth. When he reaches out to the leper, the man covered in disease, the disease doesn't transfer to Jesus. Instead, Jesus' cleanliness transfers to the leper. He is reversing the evil of the world. When Jesus chooses the company that he'll spend his time with, whores, money launderers, the people that religious leaders say are beyond repair. Jesus goes to them, and he reverses evil. He begins to restore their life and their dignity and their hope. And Jesus even shows Israel how to be Israel. He becomes the light of the world In himself, a city on a hill. He shows what it looks like to turn the other cheek when attacked or falsely accused. To go the second mile, even with a cross on his back. So when we ask why God doesn't rescue us from the evil in the world, we should remember We should remember Christ in the garden. As he knelt and he prayed, knowing what laid before him in the cross, and all of the evil of the world coming down on him, Jesus asked, God, why won't you, God, will you just spare me from this evil? Will you rescue me out of this? And God's plain answer is no. No. God, the Father, he doesn't even spare his own son, but instead allows all of evil's strength, all of wickedness' power, to be unleashed on Christ. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans, where we first began? Romans 3:25 says that Christ was actually put forward. He was brought into the forefront as propitiation by his blood, as appeasement to God's justice. In the end, God exhausts evil. And evil has nothing left. God stands victorious. Now after all of God's wrath and all of his judgment have been satisfied in Christ, we are again given a gift, a choice to accept him by faith or attempt to stand on our own before God. God has demonstrated his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. God is just because the penalty, it wasn't removed. But God is the justifier. He sends Christ to fulfill the payment and declares people in right standing with himself. Listen. Listen. This is the heart of the Christian faith that at the cross, all of God's justice and all of God's love meet. And we, God's people, are declared free of charge, spotless, blameless in Christ. God is just, but man, God is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing our own evil hearts, God, the wickedness in us. God, we see it all around us, Lord, but we declare, we declare by faith, God, that you are good, that you love us. God, even that you have paid our debt. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray the weight of what you've done, it would rest on us tonight. God, I pray as we respond to you now, as we worship you, God, as we lift our face to you, Lord, that you meet us in this place, God, and remind us. God, while you did this for all of humanity, you did this for us individually, God. You see each one of our brokenness, God. You see each one of our the weight that we carry. And God, you say you take it on yourself. Lord, let that be tonight the reality that rests in our heart. Let that be for us, God, hope. And we say we love you, God, in Jesus' name.